Yes. All rise. The Honorables, the presiding judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save this state and this honorable court. Be seated. Good morning. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge John Arrowood. To my left is Judge Jefferson Griffin. Um, and assisting us today is our clerk, Gene Soar, and Officer Richard Remillard. On the calendar this afternoon is the case of Christopher Davis individually and as administrator of the estate of Felicia O. Davis versus Marlon Frederick Woods from Cabarrus County Superior Court. Counsel, are you prepared, ready to go? Let's begin. Would you like to reserve time for rebuttal? I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, please. Okay. Mr. Soar, you've got that? Great, thank you. You may proceed. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Donna Savage. I represent the appellant in this matter, Marlon Woods. The appellant in this matter, the appellee in this matter is Christopher Davis, individually in his capacity as the administrator of the estate of Felicia Davis. For the purposes of this argument, I will refer to the appellant as Marlon Woods or Marlon and the appellee as Christopher Davis or Christopher, and the decedent in this matter um, as Felicia Davis. In addition, um, for purposes of clarity, um, there is referred to in this particular um, case repeatedly the term commissions and residuals and basically they are the same thing um, they represent payments for um, commissions that for insurance that were sold but the terms are interchangeable as far as the argument goes 
This case is the culmination of an all too familiar scenario of lack of estate planning in a blended family and the struggles the family has with the implementation of the wishes of the departed one. But your client was never married to uh, the decedent, is that correct? That is true, that is true. And your client, was your client, your client was not living in North Carolina and the decedent was, is that correct? As far as living, he came here off and on um, from the time they purchased the home to the time in June of 2017 until Felicia passed away. He was, he did have a permanent resident in Chicago. At that time, he was a uh, lieutenant in the fire department. And so as part of his job requirements, he had to keep a permanent re residence. And you said they purchased the home, but the home was just in her name. Is that, that is correct. That is correct, Your Honor. And he didn't make a claim that he made any uh, contribution to the um, purchase price or anything like that, did he? No, there was no claim for that. Again, um, the result of this failure to plan is a cascade of legal proceedings followed by what, the cont uh, what we contend was a cascade of legal errors. I want to briefly recite the facts just for clarity. Marlon Woods and Felicia Davis were longtime partners. Marlon and Felicia lived together as a couple for approximately 17 years. Felicia had a son named Christopher who she had when Marlon and, and she met. Marlon raised Christopher as his own son. Marlon provided financial support for Felicia and Christopher. Marlon attended school and sporting events with Christopher and Felicia. The family took vacations together, including cruises and trips to theme parks. During but Ms. Davis had a, had a very, her own very successful career, she did, did she not? Yes, they both had successful careers. Um, during the summer, they would again visit Mississippi and um, see her family. And again, Marlon had three sons from her prior marriage who became what Christopher referred to as his brothers. Marlon provided Christopher with fatherly love, guidance, and support. During their relationship, both Marlon and Felicia pursued their careers with vigor. Marlon holding two jobs as a lieutenant in the Chicago Fire Department and the owner of a security consulting company. And that's the LLC that's referred to in, in, this, is, in the evidence in this case, is that, that is correct? That is correct, Your Honor. Um, Felicia was employed in the insurance industry and flourished, becoming a successful salesperson and eventually an vice president and regional manager for a company known as AMBA. The couple maintained homes in Chicago until the summer of 2017. In the summer of 2017, on the cusp of Marlon's retirement from the fire department, the couple decided to move to Davidson, North Carolina. Christopher, at that time, um, 21, also moved with his mother and Marlon to Davidson. The move of their household items and furniture what, to the home in Davidson was a difficult one. Um, the moving company lost their items and many of their items were destroyed. Insurance claims were made for the, um, and filed for the, those lost items. Unfortunately, in mid-2017, Felicia had a recurrence of breast cancer. At the same time, 
Marlon had bilateral knee replacement in Chicago, requiring him to be in the hospital for three weeks. Both Felicia and Marlon, very hard workers, continued to work during the summer and fall of 2017. In late September, Felicia's condition quickly worsened, and on October 2017, Felicia died. Felicia, at that time, had not executed any final estate planning documents. The documents had been drafted around mid-September 2017. The documents were prepared by a, a law firm by the name of North Point Law Group. The attorney who drafted the documents' name was Casey Staley. The documents, after the death of Felicia, the family came together looking for some guidance about how to move forward. The documents were found on Felicia's computer by a work colleague by the name of Aaron Hall shortly after um, Felicia's passing. Marlon, Christopher, Felicia's two sisters, Krisha and Leticia, had a family meeting on October the 6th to discuss how to proceed with the family's duties and the implementation of various responsibilities. They assigned various responsibilities moving forward and decided they should try to follow Felicia's unexecuted plan. At the time of the meeting, the family became aware that Christopher was a beneficiary of a $1 million life insurance policy. The terms of the unexecuted trust and insurance policy were as follows. Your client was also the beneficiary of a, of a policy from her, was he not? Yes, Your Honor, a $50,000 policy. At the time that they met, I don't know that they knew all the details of that, um, but he turned out he was a beneficiary of a $50,000 life insurance policy. Did they own a home in Chicago? Um, they owned homes from time to time. Now, the actual nature of how they were titled, I do not know that. But um, they did have home ownership at various homes in Chicago. Um, and then they would, before they moved to North Carolina. But at the time but they moved. Your client never officially moved to North Carolina, isn't that correct? He never officially moved. I would agree with that statement of the facts that he never, he was, had had surgery in, um, in July and he was going back and forth to get rehab in Chicago from where he had his surgery. So that was part of what was going on there, is he was going back, staying, and, and the, there's evidence in the record of this, he was staying with his, in his sister's apartment while he was rehabbing from his bilateral knee surgery. So the, again, returning to what the, um, the trust, unexecuted trust provided, and again, this is in the record, it provided that um, the property and furniture located in Bivens Street and You're not arguing, though, that this unexecuted document gave your client any legal interest in any of this property, are you? No, no, it is an, uh, it was a document that had been prepared. Um, it was guidance for the family, um, and they used it to figure out um, how to move forward. They were, the death of Felicia appeared to be um, it was sudden. She had had cancer before, and, and it, it, um, clearly she wasn't, she had thought she was, was going to execute these documents, but they never got executed. So basically the family 
was well, left. Excuse me. I mean, you, we, you know that the documents weren't executed, but right. you don't know why they weren't executed. That she may not have approved of the, you know, the way they had been drafted. Is, isn't that correct? That is true. I mean, we don't know. We don't know um, what transpired um, between September the 17th when the documents were drafted and October the, the 4th. We, we don't know, um, and I would concede that. So then we have, um, again, they're just, this is the outline of the documents. Um, that there was, the Lincoln was go to Marlin, the, her, her personal effects would go to her children, and that $50,000 would be paid and distributed to her um, sisters equally. Marlin was the um, residuary beneficiary to the trust. Was the Lincoln paid for? No. And so when you talk about the car payments that mm -hmm. he made, that was on the Lincoln? Correct. And that, did, did they change the title to that car to? To uh, your client? No, no. Um, title to the property was never changed to my client's name. And was the car registered in North Carolina? The car was registered in North Carolina, to, to my understanding, yes. Well, now that we're talking about the uh, expenditures, mm -hmm. How much of the $27,000 was paid by your client and how much was paid by an LLC or his LLC? I don't know the answer to that question, but there was, there was evidence that some of it was paid by the LLC and some of it was paid by my client. So is it your contention that he's entitled to some sort of offset for amounts paid by a third party? Yes, Your Honor, and I've um, set out in my brief like what your it, it, that is consideration. If I direct, even though it didn't come out of my bank account, if I direct an entity that I own to pay something, that the court, the um, it's in a, it's in a footnote, and um, then that would be consideration. It doesn't actually have to come out of my pocket, but if I'm directing a third party to pay it on my behalf then it would still be consideration from, from the perspective of Mr. Woods. So are you saying it's consideration for him to make payments on a house and a car that were going to, that he thought were going to be his? So I believe, Your Honor, um, that... Because, it, I mean, the, the, the agreement doesn't say... The agreement doesn't say. However, as far as consideration goes, his motives in making the payment are not, that doesn't determine what consideration is. We're, whenever I'm paying consideration, like if I'm paying for a car, or I'm paying for some, some other thing, or I'm such as in the Pinley case where the husband worked um, because he thought his, he had an agreement with his wife that she was gonna convey property to him, there is always an expectation when you're paying consideration that you're gonna get something in return. So as far as motives go, um, to me, that is not relevant to the determination of consideration. Whenever we're paying consideration under a contract, we, we, we want to benefit. What, right? what, what consideration did the agreement recite? The agreement did not have any particular recitation on consideration. Well, what, do you, what does your client consider the contend the consideration for this agreement was? His payments that he made to benefit 
Christopher Davis. Was that a term of the, of the contract? It was does, not, does it say in there he's going to make these payments? It was not um, specifically delineated in the agreement, the contract agreement of distribution. However, there was significant and testimony on the fact that the parties during the negotiation process that Mr. Woods was um, <coughs> expecting to meet the financial obligations of the home, the mortgage, and the loan payments. But the agreement that he got a Chicago lawyer to sign and gave to Mr. Davis uh, on the eve of his mother's funeral in Chicago gave him the property that he's making the payments on, didn't it? It gave him the house. He think he continued he was entitled to the house and he was entitled to this car. Did he not? It didn't necessarily it give him the house. It said he was entitled to receive the house. So as we know as estate lawyers that um, there is a whole intestate law out there. He never was conveyed the house um, because the, the estate was never open. So there was some ambiguity. But it, the, it was the intent of this agreement that he was to, it was to get the, the house, and he thought he was getting the house, yes. and then he was making payments on yes, it. Yes, he was. It, he, and he thought he was getting the car, and he was making payments on the yes, car. Yes, that is true. And, it, and that is not recited as consideration. The terms and conditions of the agreement, if they're to be considered the consideration, um, do not include him making these payments because that's not that's not uh, provided for in the contract. Is that it? Correct? Doesn't say that in the contract. However, the evidence and surrounding circumstances, which which expand and are allowed to be um, used to in, be included in the contract, where as in this case, there's ambiguity as to who is doing what and how what, the contract. What, what's what is okay. First of all, if there's ambiguity, isn't that to be construed against the drafter? The drafter was the law firm. On behalf of your client? Yes. And uh, secondly, what's the ambiguity? The ambiguity is there's language at the end that says um, it's subject to the estate administration process. So it's not to be a complete, there's a recognition that it's subject to the estate administration process. Um, it's, it's more, in my opinion, it was more um, drafted to be a family settlement agreement, um, which are used frequently in estates to kind of delineate what's going to happen with the property of the decedent. But family settlement agreements are normally drafted between parties, both of whom claim some legal interest in a property, and they are trying to then uh, delineate how they're going to settle that dispute. Isn't that correct? That's, that is absolutely correct. Um, that's the normal context for them is in the, in the but in this situation, again, um, the, the waterfront on all the issues that had to be, um, that had to be directed because at that point we've got basically lay people trying to figure out how to implement um, 
the decedent's estate. Um, so that's well that's, with, with the assistance of an attorney. Um, it's not clear that the attorney ever drafted this. It appears that um, from the record that her paralegal um, may have been the one to draft this agreement. Um, she couldn't recall drafting it um, in, in any event. It was drafted by a lawyer's office. That, that would, I would submit to that. I don't know that an attorney actually, actually drafted it. Um, so from that perspective, it, you know, we contend that he did pay consideration, that it went through the, it went through the, the LLC, but that that is not, um, that is not conclusive of whether there was consideration. I'd like to move on to. Um, well, shouldn't the, if you're going, your, your client brought suit against Christopher. Mm -hmm. Um, on, on several grounds, but one to recover these expenditures. Is that correct? Um, he brought, yes, unjust enrichment um, would be that particular um, case. But that, that unjust enrichment claim was dismissed at the summary judgment level. Um, as far as what we're, we contend is that the error that was committed that caused the cascade of what we consider to be legal issues was the granting of the summary judgment for on the claim for breach of contract because of course we and well as we discussed that there was consideration for um, for what he did and that he should have been able to collect the remaining residuals because there was consideration for the agreement because he did something and you're if carrying out your contention to its logical conclusion would be you would contend that your client is entitled to the house and the car and the residuals and that all Mr. Davis is entitled to is the million dollars in life insurance that his mother left him separately. That's your client's basic bottom line contention here, that's, isn't it? That's, that would be the, yes, the carrying out of that. We well, have mainly well, less, less a hundred, a hundred thousand dollars, right, to this sister. Correct. Okay. Just yeah. want to make sure. Yeah. Um, correct, Your Honor. So, as far as that, um, that is, we have said that the, because the court then found no consideration for the contract, there was a a a, a cascade effect that the court found that there was you know no conversion. Um, no unjust enrichment because of that particular lack of consideration for that contract. And, and I've briefed that and contend in my brief that that is not, um, that is not appropriate. That well, if we disagree with you that there was consideration mm -hmm. and you lose on that issue, mm -hmm. address, can you address for us the issue, the unjust enrichment issue? Yes. Um, the unjust enrichment issue would be I paid for something and you benefited from it. So he paid for the mortgage and he paid for the, the loan on the car. The vehicle and the home eventually became Christopher's property. So Christopher was unjustly enriched as a result of these payments that Mr. Woods made. Well, they didn't eventually become Christopher's property. Under the intestacy laws, upon her death, doesn't the property immediately pass to her heirs 
under under the le under the legal theory, right. there may not be a deed that does it, but under the legal theory, upon her death, Christopher owned the house. He owned the house, yes. Because he's that, the, her only heir in, 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 in the intestacy. And that's always something that we have to explain to our clients. Like, once somebody passes away, you are the owner of the real estate. That is very true. The car is a different story. The car is a probate estate, so it goes through the probate process. But that is, you are exactly true, that, that um, when Marlon was making those payments, Christopher was the owner. Um, of and, and that never changed during the course of the conduct between the parties. Well, I mean, I think you bring up an interesting point, um, which I agree with you. Most people do not understand that, uh, that, that the title to real property um, passes automatically upon someone's death, as a, generally speaking. Uh, so that being said, did Christopher know that he owned the house? Did did uh, did your client know that he didn't own the house? I would assume that they. Uh, again, I'm assuming. I don't know, but that in the um, that since they um, executed that assignment, and there was language in there that said it was to be, you know, it was to go to Marlin that there was an understanding that he didn't currently own it. That it was not an that was not in his name, it was in somebody else's name, and that name was Felice's name. So whether he knew Christopher became the owner, what he did know was that he was not the owner, um, that Felicia was the owner. You, uh, Your Honor, I'd like to um, move forward with, um, again, and we say this cascade of errors, and I'm just, is the, there was some errors committed at trial, limitation of cross-examination of Davis, um, Denial of isn't that a, isn't that a discretionary ruling on the court's part? It is. Um, it is, and it's a matter of whether you determine that as prejudicial or not, given the you know reading of what happened. Um, the other is a denial of the duty to read instructions, um, the the duty to um, read the instruction on requirement that you read a document, and if you don't read the document, then you can't come back and say I I you know. I want all these remedies um, because it's specifically said in there what was to happen. But aren't there some exceptions to that rule? There are fraud, mistake, and oppression. So in this case, if the and in order to preserve that, the client asked for it at trial or asked for it. The judge denied it. The instructions were read. Was there an objection to the instructions after the instructions were read? No, you mean. Did and isn't that a waiver of this argument? I do not believe so. And there are a bunch of language and a bunch of cases out there that say that if you don't object to the instructions again at the end of it, that you waive that, that it was, right. It's my understanding, Your Honor, that the um, the post-trial motion under Rule 59 can also serve as an objection. The next is the um, the next thing that we have um, is the reply that we think was an error is the reply to the question submitted to the jury. Um, didn't your didn't the lawyers uh, collaborate on what that was going to be and agree that that was what the judge was going to read to the jury? We okay. If you read closely the transcript. The court noted that I objected to the question being answered at all. 
once it was determined that the question was going to be answered, yes, I participated in the discussion regarding what should be drafted, but I did object um, to the question being answered at all. You're going into your uh, rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. Is there any further questions at this time? Is that? Thank you. You may proceed. Thank you. May it please the court, judges of the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Elliot Fuss, and together with Chad Archer, I represent Appelli Christopher Davis. Christopher, can you stand for just a second? This is Mr. Davis. Um, thank you. In this case, a jury found that shortly after the death of Christopher's mother, Felisa, a longtime father figure to Christopher took advantage of a role of trust and confidence to obtain Christopher's inheritance. I plan to address all issues other than Christopher's post-trial motion. Mr. Archer is prepared to discuss our post-trial motion, which related to the trial judge's modification of the jury's damages award. How do you plan to divide your time? Um, we do not have a, a preset uh, division of time on those issues. Um, however, um, I, I would say t 10 minutes for, for Mr. Archer would probably be appropriate unless the court um, that, feels That sounds fine. That sounds fine. Thank you. So the crux of this case is that Mr. Woods, who had been Felice's boyfriend, had Christopher sign a document purporting to distribute essentially all of his mother's assets to Mr. Woods, although Felisa had not actually left Mr. Woods anything. Mr. Woods represented uh, that, that the document was something to allow him to help with taking care of household utilities and mortgage and stuff like that, Christopher testified at trial. Christopher trusted Mr. Woods and signed the document without reading it or verifying what it said. In fact, it was a literally one-sided agreement in which Christopher, quote, certifies to be an agreement may occur depending upon the estate findings, unquote, that Mr. Woods would be distributed Felice's house, car, furniture, and other estate assets, as well as an ongoing stream of commissions from Felice's insurance business, which Felisa left to Christopher in a beneficiary designation form. Although Christopher didn't even know what commissions were when his mother died, he discovered later that the commissions existed, that Mr. Woods was receiving them, and that Mr. Woods obtained them by giving Felisa's employer the document that he had Chris sign. When Christopher objected to the employer, the employer redirected the commissions to Chris, but not before over $89,000 had gone to Mr. Woods. While both parties made various claims against each other, Christopher's core claim was return of the $89,000. Ultimately, the trial court found that this agreement of distribution was unenforceable and that Mr. Woods's claim uh, claims against Christopher were legally without merit. And the jury found that Mr. Woods was liable under conversion, constructive fraud, 
breach of fiduciary duty, and an unjust enrichment theories for taking the commissions. There are no reversible errors in connection with the jury verdict. So one thing uh, that appellant- Could you explain to me your position as to why if uh, the appellant has made these payments on the house to which he is not entitled, if we find he's not entitled to house and the car and that he's made those payments, why is that not uh, unjust enrichment to your client? Uh, well, there um, are, are multiple reasons why um, Mr. Woods should not be able to recover for unjust enrichment. Um, one being that um, the payments, um, any claim for those payments was time barred. So there is a statute of limitations for. Um, well, they would have been time. They might have been time barred against the estate, but why would they have been time barred as against your client individually? Well. Um, one thing that I would point out, um, Judge, is that in the interrogatory responses uh, that Mr. Woods provided, which were in the summary judgment record, uh, on page uh, 102 of the record, um, an interrogatory was posed to him that said, identify the nature of each of the at least $27,000 in payments that you made. And he wrote, um, that the nature of the payments refer to payments of debts of the estate, including mortgage payments, car payments, and utility payments. Within the summary judgment record, Mr. Woods was saying these are estate debts that I was paying, and that was his contention and, and what he asserted to the court, um, and his pleadings also listed the dates on which he, he paid them, um, which um, were well before making any claim uh, in this case uh, for those payments. Uh, so the trial judge at summary judgment had Mr. Woods himself saying, these are estate debts that I was paying and on the face of, of the record that they would be time barred under that statute that applies to estates. Um, beyond that, I would also note, Your Honor, that... Well, doesn't that, but doesn't this go back to my other question about when did, when did your client actually own the house which was at the, upon his mother's death, was it not? I mean, the house passed in intestacy to him upon her death. So the, it wasn't an asset of the estate, was it? The house itself. The, the, the house itself, uh, I, I would agree, uh, Judge. And um, these were mortgage payments on the house. Is that not correct? Uh, yes, part of the 27000 was mortgage payments on the house. Now, of course, according to Mr. Woods, those were estate debts. And, and I would contend, Your Honor, that uh, he is bound by his own contentions in the case uh, on this issue. Um, now, uh, beyond that, now some of the 27,000 was things other than 
um, house payments um, that very well may have been estate debts, uh, the car, uh, that type of thing. Um, Do you know how much how much of it was uh, for the house and car? Um, I have not totaled the numbers, but Mr. Woods's schedule of what he claimed in the twenty-seven thousand um, dollars, I believe, is uh, in the record, and. Um, can be found at page 51 of the record. Uh, and so without, without doing the math, I can tell you that the, the, the evidence is there in the record. Thank you. Um, and it, it is important as well to note that most, the, the, the large majority of these payments were actually made by an LLC. Um, and that is significant here. Mr. Woods, but by claiming for himself an unjust enrichment claim for these payments, is basically trying to reverse Pierce his own corporate veil. Um, and there's a distinction in the law between an LLC's right and an individual's right. And, and in fact, Mr. Woods acknowledged that concept because Within the estate, he actually filed a claim on behalf of the LLC. And I, I believe this is in the record as, as, as well. And that when was he. The $15,000 claim, was that on behalf of the LLC? Um, I, I cannot. There were, two, there were two claims. I mean, he filed a claim against the estate and dismissed, and it was dismissed, and he didn't pursue that. Isn't that correct? For like a $15,000. I, the, I can't remember the specific number, but the, if, if it was 15,000, I think essentially that was a subset of what became 27,000. My recollection is that uh, Mr. Woods in the estate, well, Mr. Woods and the LLC in the estate filed a claim for a certain amount of money, and um, it, it, the, uh, Christopher denied it. Claim was denied, and he didn't appeal that. And then he brought a lawsuit. Correct. For another twenty-seven thousand, uh, that includes part of what was in the fifteen. Uh, co correct. The number went higher when when he filed suit. Um, he, he must have remembered additional things that that he thought he paid for. Um, in any event, at trial, we went through. Uh, I went through with him and uh, cross-examining him, uh, and and determined that, I mean, he could only specify that he actually paid, I think it was maybe five of, of 21 um, items uh, that, that were on his list. Um, so- Point out where in the transcript that is, do you have it off the top of your head? Um, I do not have it off the top of my head, but I you feel pretty notes. sure That's it is in our brief. There's a lot of minutiae here, and if one goes through the exercise, I think our, our brief can lead you to the right parts where, where you can see the transcript. And, and I, I think I literally tick through everyone and say, did you make this? Did the LLC make this? And there's also um, supporting documentation that Mr. Woods submitted where he actually 
gave the LLC's bank accounts to show where items came from. Um, so, you know, most of this $27,000 claim uh, is, is not Mr. Woods' individual claim to make. I and mean, there's no evidence he assigned it or anything like that. And, and at first, he, he, the LLC made the claim for its share, and, but then they didn't take a, a, that into account um, when we got into uh, the uh, Superior Court action. And um, so beyond that, um, you know, with respect to an unjust enrichment claim, you know, that, that is an equitable claim. And uh, under the circumstances, uh, I could definitely see how the court could justify not feeling that the equities um, merited an, uh, an equitable recovery for, for Mr. Woods under these circumstances. Oh, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Anne. <laughs> Are you contending then that he, that, that he doesn't have clean hands? Yes. But can a judge on summary judgment rule that I'm going to find you don't have clean hands and I'm going to issue summary judgment against you on, on your uh, equitable claim? Um. I, I'm not sure how much the the summary judgment uh, the judge uh, could have ruled on that, but in in any event, um, the evidence did come out at trial, and at this point, this court has the benefit of that evidence. Um, and now that now that you have that, um, I, but why isn't that a jury question as opposed to? me sitting here and say, well, I don't think he has clean hands, so I'm just not going to entertain it. I, I, that's not my role. That's the role of a jury, isn't it? Well, Your Honor, you already have the jury's determination that Mr. Woods converted money, that Mr. Woods breached fiduciary duties, that Mr. Woods engaged in constructive fraud. And, and the, I think the jury has spoken that Mr. Woods doesn't have clean hands. Those are not indicators of clean hands. So, um, well, if you but if you also do the math of what the jury did, and that's getting into your co-counsel's argument, I suspect it looks like what the jury may have done is they take took the eighty-seven thousand and reduced it by the amount of some of these payments. Isn't that if you do the math, isn't that what that really is happened? precisely what the jury did, uh, Your Honor. I'll let Mr. Archer get into the nuts and bolts of the post-trial motion, but um, I, I would concur that they took a, that specific number and deducted it. In, um, but it, the jury uh, verdict it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a clean verdict, Your Honor. Um, there have been uh, arguments made about errors with, with jury instructions. I mean, either the instructions that are being complained about were, um, frankly, a, agreed to um, with respect to the contract follow-up question uh, or redundant uh, the, in the case of the uh, duty to read 
uh, essentially the instruction that was being requested had a big carve out for unless there is fraud or mistake or oppression involved. And that's exactly what was involved here. So um, really that attempt to apply a contract defense to the tort claims that were uh, actually being put in front of the jury um, w was out, out of step and w would have only confused the jury um, and, and was redundant and unnecessary. Uh, and there was no reversible error with regard to the instructions, as well no reversible error with regard to any exclusions uh, of evidence. Um, I, I'm not even sure I understand exactly what was excluded that um, Mr. Woods wanted to uh, present as there's no offers of proof uh, provided. Uh, and in any event, um, issues regarding admission or exclusion of evidence have an abuse of discretion standard. Uh, there must be proof that um, there would have been a different result, uh, and, and the appellant certainly has not carried that burden. Um, likewise, um, there are no reversible errors we contend in connection with the dismissal of, of Mr. Woods's claims. Uh, we have discussed unjust enrichment. Um, Mr. Woods also made a claim for recovery uh, of uh, the $27,000. Um, and that uh, claim for recovery uh, was, was made solely against the estate, I, I believe, and, and would have been uh, fully barred uh, by the statute of limitations. Can you uh, brief, I'm sorry, can sorry. you briefly address uh, the appellant's argument about their argument about what the consideration for this agreement was? Certainly there was no consideration. Um, this is a one-sided uh, agreement, literally. It is a document that has one party signing it and no other party. Uh, and we look at the agreement and it lists all the things that Christopher is going to distribute to Mr. Woods and nothing that Mr. Woods is going to give to Christopher. Now, now they, they say, well, he made these payments on the house or the car. Well, maybe he did, but was that part of the agreement? It says nowhere in here that that was part of the agreement. Moreover, moreover I, I don't recall any testimony that Christopher and Mr. Woods sat down and, and said, okay, I will give you all this stuff, but you have to um, make the house and car payments, um, which based on the agreement, what Mr. Woods thought what he was gonna have happen was gonna be his house and his car anyway. So Christopher was getting nothing out of this, nothing. I mean, it, it was at best as, as if, you know, I, I said, I, I would like to buy a widget from you, uh, and uh, here's the deal. You give me a widget, and uh, I'll pay myself a dollar. I paid a dollar, but you didn't get the, do the dollar. I mean, it was, 
really, there, there's no consideration and even if there was, this contract, if there is an unconscionable contract, it is this contract. And it, it, it's you, hard to even call it a contract um, since there, there are not even two parties in it to have a meeting of the minds. Um, You're getting ready to cut into your co-counsels? Thank you very much, Your Honor. At this time, I, I'd like to see the, the remainder of the time to Mr. Archer. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, judges. Um, again, I'll, I'll be talking about the, our post-trial motion. And just to give some context for that, um, by the time this case came on for trial, there were all of our clients' claims remained. Those were claims for conversion, for um, breach of fiduciary duty, constructive fraud, unjust enrichment, I think was the other claim. Um, and there was one claim by the defendant that was its action for recovery against the estate. That claim by the defendant got dismissed at the motion, motion for directed verdict stage. Um, and only the client's claims, our client's claims, went on for the jury's determination. And they were, that, the first claim again was that conversion claim. And from the very beginning, in the complaint even, um, that claim is about $89,000 in commissions. The specific amount is listed in the complaint. Um, the jury gets instructed that the parties have entered into a stipulation that residual commissions is gonna be a defined term. That means the 89... Not a stipulation as to damages, is it? There's nothing that says that this is a stipulation that if you find this, you shall find that. It's not a stipulation as to damages, but the stipulation says they have agreed or stipulated that the amount that they received, that Mr. Woods received from the residual commissions from the decedent's employer to be termed residual commissions was $89,975.33. And since they've agreed to that, you were to take that, he received that amount as true for purposes of this case. And then the first issue that they get instructed on is, did Mr. Woods convert this defined term, this $89,000 in residual commissions? And they said, yes, he converted the $89,000 in commissions. And really the only defense that gets raised as to that is the defendant's contention that, oh no, it was a gift. And the jury says, no, we don't believe that. It wasn't a gift, we find no on that. And then when it comes to finding what the amount is, they say it's this amount that's less than $89,000. And, and, and in fact, it is the amount of less, it's $89,000 less what, they, what the evidence was that he paid on the house and the car. Precisely to the penny, that is the amount that is, is the difference. And of course, that was the amount that was requested pursuant to the claim for recovery, which had been dismissed on the plaintiff's motion for directed verdict. Um, so essentially what they appear to have done is granted an off or set off a recoupment, et cetera, whatever you want to call it, that wasn't authorized under the law because there was no affirmative defense. Well, while that may have given you the right to ask for a, a new trial on the issue of damages, how did that give you the right for Judge Cubbage to do what she did and basically do her own jury verdict as opposed to sending it back to it for a new trial on the jury verdict of what it should be? 
So, so Judge Arrowwood, what happened is that once we realize that, that, or once Christopher realizes that there is a judgment amount that is inadequate, that is clearly wrong under some misapprehension of law that's giving an unauthorized set off for this dismiss counterclaim, a motion is brought, a post-trial motion that moves pursuant to various grounds. One of them is Rule 59 and the various provisions of Rule 59 that seem clearly applicable here including an insufficient amount of damages and not following the judge's instructions as to the stipulation, et cetera. And Judge Cubbage grants the motion for a new trial on, under one of the enumerated grounds pursuant to which a new trial can be granted. Did she inform the parties that it would be limited to the issue of damages? She granted it as to the issue of damages only. Okay. Uh, and I think we asked in our motion that there be a new trial on the issue of damages only. And, and that's what the order says. The, the, the new trial is granted as to the issue of damages only. And then she goes back and amends it and, and gives her own and, and does a new judgment herself. Yes. So effectively, she proceeds to then, rather than impaneling a jury, enter what is effectively a summary of judgment for the stipulated amount. Was there a motion for summary judgment? Um, there was not a motion for summary judgment made in connection with the post-trial motion. And what case can you cite to me that gives her the right to enter that number as opposed to going back to the jury? And don't tell me, suppose I don't accept your agreement that this is a stipulation as to what the damages are. Mm -hmm. Well, one, the one case that, that seems particularly on point is the Housing Incorporated versus Weaver case. And that was a case in which the relevant part is the defendant counterclaimed um, for a breach of a promissory note. The plaintiff had brought claims saying, declare this promissory note null and void, no effect, it's the product of undue duress, and actually I want all my money that I've previously paid on it given back to me. Um, the case comes on for trial the jury does not buy the plaintiff's arguments and says it's a valid promissory note. The promissory note is admitted into evidence. Um, you can see from the face of the, the, the amount what it is. You can see that there's been a stipulation by the parties. There's been admissions as to the amount that would be owed under the promissory note if it's a valid note. And the jury rejects the plaintiff's theory, says that essentially implicitly, if not explicitly, accepts the defendant's theory on the counterclaim, but then awards damages less than the amount of the agreed upon stipulated amount that's readily ascertainable. And the brings a post-trial motion. The post-trial motion is granted. It's analyzed including under a Rule 59 lens, the new trial motion lens. And the court, this Court of Appeals said the trial court had the power to grant the new trial as to damages only, which is what happened here as well. Um, but such a trial, and that's what the, the trial court said effectively, I'm granting this motion, and to the extent it's a Rule 59 motion, uh, I would grant this if this case were vacated and reversed because of all these enumerated grounds. The this court goes on to say, but such a trial would be a waste of judicial resources because the stipulations of the parties, the undisputed evidence, and the plaintiff's admissions establish the amount of the de defendant's damages as a matter of law. The trial court could have entered a directed verdict under the circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. This, um, our courts have long recognized the power of the courts to decide issues of damages where this area, this area is undisputed. That's what happened here. 
there was a, there was a stipulation, and the, and the jury was instructed on the stipulation. The amount of damages was never in dispute, and so what, the, all this rationale applies from the same case. It would have been an absolute waste of the trial court's issues of, of resources to impanel a jury so that they could decide what the damages are when the amount of the, the damages are stipulated. And I think that the stipulation is actually as to the amount of the damages because conversion- you've read, you've read it to me and I, I know your contention. Okay, well, I just wanna, I think there was a question earlier about what, what is the real import of the stipulation. And my only further response to that would be that the, the measure of damages is the fair market value of whatever is converted in a conversion claim. And so if you stipulate that the item that is converted is $89,000 in commissions, that is establishing as a matter of law, to use this language from the, the Housing Incorporated case, what the damages are. That's effectively what it is. Um, so I think that that case allows that. And then in the brief, we also discussed the justice case and the dis distinction there. The distinctions being, one, there wasn't actually a new trial motion brought. There was a motion to alter or amend the judgment which, as your honors all know, that's applicable only in bench trials, not in jury trials. And then there had not been a stipulation as to damages in that case. The jury had adduced an amount of damages from the evidence, and it was $512,000 or whatever, but then said, oh, we think they failed to mitigate, so we're giving them a dollar in damages. That's different from a, a stipulation having been entered. Um, the only other thing that I'll say about this issue is that there's some mention about um, whether this was a compromise verdict. We don't think that it was because it wasn't a case where they compromised. Some people said, we want to vote yes on liability. We want to vote no. How about you vote yes in exchange for some half measure instead? But that's not what a compromise verdict necessarily is. And we don't know what happens in a jury room. And when we're talking about compromise verdict, it's not because there's evidence that people are are doing X or Y, isn't that correct? We, that's not the only case in which a compromise verdict could arise. That's what happened here. But we also know that a compromise verdict isn't whenever a jury believes some set-off theory and applies um, a set-off for it. That's not a compromise verdict. So that body of case law, we contend, is inapplicable. And I, I'll tell you, I, the case I have for that, I think, is Harris versus Harris. It's another case from this court, um, which, is 50 NCF 305. And your time is up. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> so much I want to say, but not <laughs> enough time. <laughs> I would like to um, point out a case that that um, I did not cite on my brief, but it's Coltrane versus Lamb that addresses this whole issue. It's in the the um, tort area of car accidents where people stipulate as to medical medical expenses, and the court has said in that case, and, and it's Coltrane versus Lamb. Um, NCAP 654, that in fact, um, that does not mean you're stipulating as to um, damages, that you have to make that causal connection there between what the stipulation are on medicals, or in this case, what the stipulation is on 
how much Mr. Woods received. So our, we would argue as follows on that particular argument that for conversion, these are the elements of conversion, that he converted the commissions and that what that means is that the plaintiff must prove by the greater weight of the evidence two things. First, that at the time Woods came into possession of the commissions, Christopher Davis was the lawful owner. I contend that was never proved at trial. That, that was never proved at trial um, and was entitled to its possession. Second, the defendant converted the residual commissions to his own use. He did not commit those, he did not, the jury found that, that he did not commit $27,000 to his own use. He paid it for Chris's benefit. And that the conversion is the unauthorized exer exercise of a right of ownership over the property. There's evidence in the record that Christopher knew that Mr. Woods was making these payments. Thus, a jury could say, that he authorized those payments. He sat by and let Mr. Woods make those payments without raising any objection. So my contention is, is that the stipulation as to the amount of residuals is not a stipulation as to that the, that the residuals received were converted. There's plenty of evidence where the jury could have found differently, and in fact, the jury did. Um, I would argue that as far as the Rule 29 motion, um, 59 motion, that the court absolutely <clears throat> substituted its judgment for the judgment of the jury. The court went in and where the jury had awarded a dollar in damages, the court put in $89,000 on every one of the nominal damages um, that were awarded. So in my, in our um, what should have happened is what we have argued is that there was there was jury confusion. I think the jury went down once the erroneous um, instruction was given, which we contend was erroneous. That um, that about whether the agreement was enforceable, the jury then said, "Okay, well, that's because they didn't have that information. The plaintiff had not proved an element of its case." Um, that the legality of that agreement. So when the jury came back with that, it was, it was quick. Um, the jury then wrote in the, the, um, the amount less the 27,000 and then went quickly down, found no fraud, found no punitive damages, and entered nominal damages on all the other claims, including the unjust enrichment claim. Um, so we contend that what should have happened is the judge should have granted a new trial and that what the judge did by entering the amounts was substitute her um, opinion as to damages for that of the jury. And that's not appropriate on a Rule 59 motion. And so we contend that, A, the judge illegally uh, or inappropriately um, changed the, the jury verdict and that the case should be sent back for a new trial on all issues based on what, what happened at the Rule 59 hearing. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that concludes um, oral argument in this matter. We'll take this under advisement.
Um, I want to thank you, um, Council, for your excellent arguments this morning. Mr. Soil Manager. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned.